The rest of us are in the book of Ezra. Ezra. The Gospel according to Ezra and Nehemiah. One more in the series in that book of Ezra, and then we'll jump into Nehemiah. But right now we're in the book of Ezra. Sorry. So we're in Ezra. We continue our series in chapter 7. We left off in chapter 6 last week. We're in chapter 7 this week. Actually, as you turn the page from 6 to 7, um, a lot has happened. I know it's just one page. You just flipped it, and, and that was pretty easy. But as I said when we began this series, Ezra is broken into two very neat packages. Chapters 1 through 6, uh, part 1 of that book, dealt with the, the Jewish people returning, uh, literally the second exodus, who are returning from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem under King Cyrus. Chapter 1 opens up with the king's decree around 538, 537 B.C. And a remnant of Jewish people return and begin to, well, the first thing to do is build an altar and then begin to rebuild the temple that was burned to the ground under, their, uh, under captivity when they were destroyed by the Assyrian, or the Babylonians and the Assyrians, actually both the northern and the southern kingdom. So it's around 536 B.C. They head back under the decree of King Cyrus. They began sacrificing. They began rebuilding the temple. Last week we saw that due to opposition and laziness and really worldliness, the, the work in the first two years came to a halt. And that God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zephaniah, uh, Zechariah, excuse me, to preach and, and to stir the hearts of God's people and together with the preaching of the word and, and the work of God's people that had been you know, laid to waste for 16 years, the people began uh, rebuilding again. Four years later in 516 B.C., the temple is finished. We ended last week. There's a dedication. There is a celebration. Temple completed. So 536 around, they start. 516, they finish. 20 years it took them. To finish the temple as they returned back to Jerusalem. Part one is all about worship reform. Part two of Ezra goes from chapter seven, which you'll see today, until the end of the book in chapter 10 with another group, a smaller group, but another group of exiles from Babylon going to Jerusalem with a man named Ezra. Its, it's, its theme really is a religious reform. First it was worship reform, now we're talking about a religious reform, a, a religious revitalization in Jerusalem. And the good news is, if you've been going home every Sunday and having a hard time sleeping all week long, wondering, where's this guy Ezra in the book? We went through six chapters, he's nowhere to be found. I know it's been very upsetting for most of you. Um, we find him now in chapter 7. He finally shows up the name in which the book was entitled. You could sleep well now after today. When Ezra opens up in chapter 7, the king that is ruling, his name is Artaxerxes. So we saw Cyrus, we saw Darius. Now we have Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes comes to power in 465 B.C. It says in Ezra 7, 7 that it was in his seventh year in the chronological order, the context of chapter 7, it's in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, which puts us in the year of 458 B.C. And you're thinking, so what? Do the math. 
Chapter 6 closes with the dedication of the temple in 516. Chapter 7 opens up 60, almost 60 years later. You turn the page, it's 60 years. It's now 458 B.C. and actually 80 years since Cyrus allowed the Jews to return. So a lot has happened. We're not, we don't have the recording of it for 60 years as we turn from chapter 6 to chapter 7. Ezra now is taking another group, leaving Babylon, and Ezra now is heading 900 miles as the first uh, people went, 900-mile journey, four months on foot from Babylon to Jerusalem. What I want to do is I want to look, under the, I want to look at this narrative under three headings, and it's really about Ezra. So we're going to look at Ezra, the sure stock, the skilled scribe, and the sound scholar. You could tell about how corny that outline is. I, I need a break from preaching, at least a week. The main point or the purpose of Ezra's life and our narrative is really, that, like I said, the revitalization, the reformation, the reforming and renewing of God's people. That's what Ezra is all about. Now, some of you may know that it's only 19 days left until pitchers and catchers report for spring training. You know, I, I like football. I don't love it. I like football. I'm going to watch the game, and, I, and I'm rooting for the Seattle I know some of you New England fans, that's okay, it'd be a good game. Um, but I'm, I, I'm more of a baseball fan. Actually, I'm not really a, even a baseball fan, I'm a Yankee fan. There's a difference. All right. Because if the Yankees aren't playing, which is very rare, in October, I don't put my TV on. It doesn't really matter to me. Because they're not in the game. That's just me. I know you're thinking it's crazy. But anyway, this year is an important year because obviously over the past several years, the Yankees had some great players leave the ball club. Paul O'Neill, Bernie Williams, Mariana Rivera, of course, last year, Derek Jeter. One ESPN sports writer said this, For the better part of two decades, most Yankee teams arrived in the Bronx fully formed, made up of either longtime Yankees, established veterans from other clubs, or highly touted and sought-after rookies, and imports from other leagues. Gone from last year's roster are no more than 20 big league caliber players, including Derek Jeter. In their place will be 14 relatively new faces, 13 of which were required through free agency or trades. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Call it rebuilding, retooling, or reloading. It will be a very different Yankee team that takes the field in Tampa for the first full squad training in February. Who knows what the team will look like by the time they get to Yankee Stadium on April 6th. So whether it's revitalizing a team, maybe you have a sports team, they're not in the Super Bowl, or they had a bad year last year, and they're revitalizing. So whether it's a t baseball team, a football team, an economy, it's all about bringing vitality, bringing life, bringing to, to, to energy to something that is dissipating, something that is fading away. That's that way in the church sometimes. There's conferences, there are books by the score about how to revitalize, how to recharge, how to renew, how to bring purpose and meaning to a church that may be fading away. And, and some of that's good stuff. Maybe they've gotten off the road and they found themselves sidelined. There's no real gospel fruit being, uh, uh, being produced. Maybe they're living not on mission but in opposition to Jesus and the gospel. The apostles cared about revitalizing the church. That's why they wrote the letters. Jesus cared about revitalizing the church. That's why he wrote seven letters in the book of Revelation. He told five of the seven of, of the churches to repent or he removed the lampstand. They would be snuffed out. 
I'm not talking about a loss of salvation. He's talking about a loss of effectiveness in the church. They said, repent, he said. Go back. Stop doing what you're doing. Start doing what you used to do in some of the letters. Some churches need to get back in the game, get back in mission in order for the energy to return. Maybe it's, it's gaining trust in this leadership. Maybe it's using uh, people effectively in the right place at the right time. Maybe it's about just making changes on how we connect with the culture and how we are connecting people to Christ and not changing the gospel uh, message, but maybe the methods need to be reworked, music, style, whatever it may be. Ezra is not really about style, though, and music, or even repentance. Ezra's reform or revitalization that he's going to bring to the people in Jerusalem is what I would say was the needs to be there. In other words, it is essential things. It is, is the essential things. If life is going to happen, if there's going to be a sense of renewed vigor and vitality and fruitfulness and faithfulness for the kingdom and the work of King Jesus for his kingdom and his glory, If there's going to be energy with God's people, we need these things. And let me say that revitalization, reform, uh, uh, reformation, looking on how we're living out our mission, life and mission, is important for the church. It's important in that day and it's important in this day. Why? Because we are the people of God that are supposed to reflect demonstrate the character of God, the love of God, the, the, the person of God to a dying world around us. To show, to represent, to reflect his glory to the watching world. His greatness, his supremacy, his beauty, his incalculable worth, his great salvation. The place where God's name is magnified. So it's important for the church. It's important for people today. Today we get a look at Ezra. What did he bring to the table for this religious reform, this revitalization, if you will, of God's people? Let me let, turn to chapter 7 with me, and let me just give you a quick summary. We're not going to look at this, all of chapter 7 and 8 today. We won't have time for that. But let me just give you a quick outline, and we'll jump right in. Number 1, chapter 7 of Ezra. Remember, 60 years later. Chapter 7 opens up verses 1 through 10 with an outline with an important overview of the story. And, and, and the rest of chapter 7, after, after verse 10, through the rest of the chapter and into chapter 8, is the story unfolding of what he's given us in chapters 7, 1 through 10. So 1 through 10 is an overview, a, a summary, and then it gets unpacked for us. Chapter 7, 1 through 10. Then in chapter 7, 11 through 26, there's a letter that was written by King Artaxerxes and given to Ezra who leaves Babylon and goes to Jerusalem. And in it, he talks about what he wants to have done and, and the decree and, and the gold and the silver and, and the worship and the permission, everything written. And he sends this letter with Ezra. That's chapter 7, 11 through 26. Then as you turn the page to chapter 8, 1 through 14, you see a genealogy. Ezra's keeping record of the people who are returning with him. That's in chapter 8, 1 through 14. And then chapter 8, 14 through 36, we see all the events leading up to their departure, and the chapter ends with what happens when they get to Jerusalem. Chapter 7 and 8. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 7. And let's look together. Actually, let me read. And then we'll look at Ezra the sure stock. Let me just read a couple of verses. I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to hear a lot of funny names. Okay, let's read together. Now, after this, 60 years, 
In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zodak, son of Ahatub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meroth, son of Zeriah, son of Uzziah, and son of Buckeye. I like that name. Son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests of the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. People that went up. Verse 8. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. So he's talking about going. He's talking about getting there. Okay? Going up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. Verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it his statutes and rules in Israel. Kind of an overview. In verse 11, he says, this is the copy of the letter. And they're going back. So Ezra's back in, in Babylon. This is the letter. He's getting ready to go. That, that's kind of the context. But notice first with me that we have a genealogy. Now, genealogies may not be really cool, maybe uh, important or, or necessary, so you may think, but they are. All Scripture is profitable. This particular genealogy is very important because in the first part of chapter 7, it traces Ezra's ancestry way back to Aaron. Way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. It's the way, it's a way that the author is proving that Ezra was a true priest and therefore he, he comes from the right and the sure stock to introduce and to bring the necessary reforms in Jerusalem. The point here was that Ezra was an authentic priest. Now, if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 62, when the first exiles were on their way from Babylon to Jerusalem, they did a, a search. They, they conducted a genealogy search to find out the names of the priests. And it says in that verse, chapter 2, verse 62, that the ones that were not found there, I'm a priest, nope, your name's not here, were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They had to be in the genealogy because being a genuine priest is very, very important in the life of Israel. Now, let me explain something else in this chapter. You'll notice throughout this chapter and through the book, there's mentions of priests and Levites. Priests and Levites. Now, the way to remember the difference between a priest and a Levite is to remember this. All priests, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests, okay? All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. You see, Aaron and his sons were from the tribe of Levi, which is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levite tribe was set apart by God, consecrated by God for cultic service, for the worship in the temple. The Levites were given the task of assisting the priests while the privilege to Aaron, who is a Levite too, the privilege to Aaron, the Aaronic house, his lineage alone were allowed to go into the temple and actually do the sacrificing. Only the Aaronic lineage ancestry can actually do the sacrificing while the rest of the Levite tribe assisted the Aaronic lineage priests. Does that make sense? 
So they were the ones who the Holy of Hol- went into the Holy of Holies. The Aaronic line was the one who went into the Holy of Holies. They were the ones who offered the sacrifices. All the other Levites within the tribe of, of, of Levites assisted. So Aaron comes from Levi, but only his ancestry was allowed to actually do the sacrificing. And the author of this book is showing us that Ezra is not a slouch. There is lineage, there is, there is particular structure and trajectory from Aaron all the way to Ezra. Very important. You see, in the Old Testament, if you were not a priest and you tried to do priestly things, it didn't go well. Even if you were a priest and you offered strange fire and you didn't follow the commands of God, it didn't go well. You, you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, like you melted on the spot, Okay. It didn't go well. But I believe this. I believe that the scripture showing us this genealogy about Ezra, not so much to point to the stock of Ezra, his ancestry tells us more about who God is. Not so much about who Ezra is, but more about who God is. It tells us that God is faithful to his people. How the Lord is the one that raises up leaders for the benefit of reform, the benefit of revitalization, the benefit of, of, of shepherding and, and ministering before him, before the church. Which one of us this morning has chosen what ancestry you came from? None of us. None of us says, you know what, I've chosen my family. I'm sure some of you would say, I will choose otherwise. I don't know. But it tells me two things. It's not about Ezra, it's about God, but that tells me two things. One is, there's some of you that came from a really messed up background. You have a messed up family tree. Maybe not as bad as that redneck tree that has no branches, but it's really bad. You'll get that later. Let me assure you that no matter what your background is, no matter what family mess you came from, let me remind you that Scripture teaches us clearly Every single person is created in the Imago Dei. In the image and likeness of God and therefore has been bestowed on them by the Creator Himself with dignity, value, and worth. The Bible also says that ever since Adam, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And anyone by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him, can be saved, can be forgiven of their sins, can be reconciled to a holy God. Remember the Bible also teaches in 1 Corinthians that God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You know that? 1 Corinthians says God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God takes delight in showing his power and his mercy by shaming the pride. By shaming those who feel they are noble with the weak and the foolish who testify to the glory and the greatness of God. Number two, what this lineage shows us. I'm not saying that ancestry doesn't matter or is not important. Your godly heritage, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, if you come from a lineage of godly people, celebrate that. Not only by patting yourself on the back or boasting in it, but celebrate, or by not patting yourself on the back or boasting in it, but celebrate God's mercy and God's grace to you and to your forefathers and to those to whom are part of your family tree. We praise that. We thank God for his, for his goodness and his mercy because it is really, truly his mercy and grace in your life. 
that has allowed you to be in that home. It's not you. And that's the point. So if you come from a lineage of godly folks, praise God for his mercy and grace. If you come from a long line of wing nuts and whack jobs, celebrate God's grace and mercy to you as well. Praise God that he has done for you what both of you for what you could not do for yourself. And let me remind you of one thing. If you turn to the gospel according to Matthew, don't turn it, trust me, and you read the genealogy of Jesus, you will read in that genealogy about prostitutes, deceivers, and adulterers. No, no one reads that and goes, oh my word, we have just beautiful people raising Jesus, or, or in the lineage of Jesus, I should say. We have sinners. And that's to remind us that God is faithful. That's to remind us that God is faithful. And God saw to it that Christ would come from the promised seed of Abraham and David, even in messed up backgrounds. That's why Matthew opens with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you check into that genealogy, you're going to walk away and say, God is good. God is gracious. God saved and and, and worked through a bunch of broken people. So the point is not you, it's God. The point is God, it's God's faithfulness, not your performance. If you want to see a continuing of revitalization in God's people, we should always be celebrating the mercy and the grace of God. Ezra was a true peace priest of sure stock. Second, Ezra is a scribe, excuse me, a skilled scribe. According to verse 6, Ezra was a scribe. Now, some of you hear the word scribe, and, you, and right away you think of the New Testament. Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about the Pharisees, nice things to say about the Pharisees and scribes, but that's not Ezra. This is before that. He's not that kind of scribe. The word scribe is usually used of the term as uh, uh, refers to a state secretary or a royal secretary. It, it is someone, a person who, who functions as a copier, a writer, a communicator. And in Ezra's case, he's the scribe who also not only copied and communicated, but someone who taught and interpreted the Jewish law. He was an educated man. Look at verse 6. It says he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. The word skilled literally means quick, fast. So it not only applies his, 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 uh, his speed, that he did it well, but it's proficiency. He knew the scriptures. He knew to interpret the scripture. He was quick with giving you the answer when asked about the scripture. Look at verse 9 and 10 of chapter 7. Very important insight in the heart of of Ezra. Verse 9b, the second part. For the good hand of his God was upon him, Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, to do it to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. Loaded passage of scripture. The word for in verse 9, or you got the word because. In verse 9, explains why the good hand of God was upon him. Because God prospered Ezra because of his purposes. God blessed Ezra's ministry because Ezra had, had set his heart, had prepared his heart. If you have an NIV, I think it says, devoted himself. It, that word means it's a total consecration. It is a total giving of oneself completely and totally to God. Ezra loved his God. Ezra loved God's people. It wasn't a hobby. It wasn't something that he added to his already busy life. If I have a moment, I will try. If I, if, if, if I, if I, if I could take out five minutes of my life. No, he was completely devoted 
to the word of God. Notice the progression. Ezra set his heart. He was devoted to one, studying of the word. Two, to do God's word. And three, to teach God's word. And that order is important. What is needed in the church today, what is essential of God's people, are going to stay strong and effective in the world, to study the word of God. Careful and thorough Bible study and saturation. Now, I realize I'm saying that as the lead teaching pastor and doing a lot of the teaching, not all the teaching, but a lot of the teaching here. But this doesn't exclude you. This doesn't exclude you. Many of you are teaching children's church. Are you spending time reading, preparing, studying for your lessons as you teach our children? Many of you are in community groups. Are you expecting the community group leader to feed you only? Are you engaging the text? Are you praying over the text? Are you studying the text? Are you preparing for community group? Are you applying good Bible study skills like what is the context? What was the original author saying? What was the original recipients receiving? One of the reasons we do expository preaching is to help you to see what it means to interpret a passage correctly. There are books, I want you to put a shout out. If you're like, you know what, I would really love to devote myself to the study of God's word. I'm not sure how. I don't have time to go to Bible school and all kinds of training and that thing. You don't need to. There's a book that I love. It's called Living by the Book. You can email me later if that went over, you know, if you, if you can write it down. Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Reading Your Bible. Howard Hendricks and his son William Hendricks wrote it. It's a simple yet very effective way of conducting an in-depth study of Scripture. It's a great little tool. Great little tool. Remember, Paul told Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Let me give a shout out to Kings. Ever since myself and maybe five other families were meeting in a house in Ravina, strategizing and dreaming about a church plant in this area, years ago, there was an emphasis on preaching and teaching of God's word. When Ed Marcel, Pastor Ed Marcel launched the church, there was an emphasis on preaching and teaching God's word. When Pastor Phil came alongside and came after Ed, there was all, he also did expository preaching and the importance of, of teaching and preaching God's word. Even today, in this church, folks here have allowed me and the other pastor elders the time necessary to study God's word. We believe that to be very, very important, vital for the church that we can accurately preach it well. Studying God's word takes time, it takes energy, it takes patience, but it is vital to God's people. Never be involved in a church. If you leave here and you, and you move, never be involved in a church. That does not take the teaching, the preaching, the, 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 uh, the, the I, I believe, expository teaching of God's word seriously. Church will not flourish without careful and very careful and, and diligent Bible study. Now, I say all that, but have you ever met someone who really knows their Bible? They're like, they want every sword drill. You give them a verse, they know it. They know their Bible inside and out, and then you look at their life and you go, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. Notice the text. Ezra was not only deeply devoted to the word, but he set his heart out. He was devoted to doing it. I can't help but think of James, chapter 1. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He sees he needs to shave, yet he looks himself and goes away at once, forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, 
law of liberty and, and, and perseveres, being no hearer only, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see, just studying is not sufficient. It's in doing. If we want to stay in the game, we want to stay revitalized and strong in the Lord, we've got to continue on mission. We need to be doers of the word to be effective and prosper. Rick Warren says this. He says, the best way to become a doer of the word is to always write an action step as a result of your reading or studying and reflecting of God's word. He says, develop the habit of writing down exactly what you intend to do. It should be personal. It should involve you. It should be practical, something you could do. And then put a timeline. I will do this by this day. You say, well, what does a life look like? What does a life really, truly look like for someone who is in the word all the time, knows the scripture, but does not do it? I'm glad you asked. There's Chuck Swindoll writes a book called Improving Your Serve. uh, And he said, this is what it looks like. He says, let's pretend you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that is growing. I'm the owner and I'm interested in expanding overseas. But in order to pull this off, I got to travel and I got to go overseas until the new branches are established. And I make arrangements with my family and I go overseas for six months to a year and I leave you in charge. I tell you that I will write you regularly and give you directions and instructions. Then I leave and you stay. Months and months pass. A flow of letters were mailed from Europe and you received them at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations, but finally I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office. I'm stunned. Grass and weeds are growing up high all over. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the reception's room, and she's doing her nails, chewing gum and listening to her favorite radio station. I look around, and I notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. Carpets haven't been vacuumed in weeks. Nobody seems concerned that the owner is here. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the, crowd, in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. I'm a little upset. I move in that direction and bump into you as you are finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which now is turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. What in the world's going on, man? And you say, what do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Oh, yeah. I got all of them. As a matter of fact, we have had letters study Friday ever since you left. We even divide into personal small groups and discuss many of the things you wrote. Some of them are really interesting. You'd be pleased to know that a few of us actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized the whole letter. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, okay, you got my letters. You studied them, meditated on them, discussed them, and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? And the response is, do? Huh? We didn't do anything about them. God wants us to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Philippians 4, Paul says, the things you have learned, received, and heard, and saw in me as I taught you, as I lived my life out, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. We are to obey the Lord, responding to the word in obedience, what has been revealed to us. Now, I know when I talk about that, I'm on a slippery slope at this point. I I am not saying that we need to obey God in order for God to love us, to obey God in order to God to receive his approval of us. God's love is not dependent on my obedience. God's approval is not dependent on me doing the word. God's love, God's approval, God's acceptance is because of Christ and all that Jesus has done. 
His love and His acceptance of me in the gospel is what motivates me to obey His word. We never want to lose sight of the gospel, but we never want to downplay the importance of hearing and responding. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. Remember this. Religion says if I obey, God will love and accept me. The gospel is, the gospel is, God loves and accepts me because of what Christ has done and therefore I shall obey. So it's about obedience. It's about motives though. So we're all about obeying, but it's because God loves us and God accepts us and therefore we're called to respond in worship. That's what, that's what obedience really is, worship. It's responding to the grace and the mercy of God. It's hearing the voice of your master who gave himself for you and responding in obedience because he's loved you, cared for you, received you, redeemed you, loves you. His grace and mercy is upon you should motivate us, motivate us to worship him. Next, look at verse 10. He's teaching the statutes of God. Verse 25, it says that the king wrote to him and said, Look, listen, according to the wisdom of your God, verse 25, uh, appoint magistrates and judges when you get to Jerusalem who will, who will judge the people. All such as know the laws of God and those who don't know you shall teach them. So teach others so that others can teach. So it's not just, listen, not just studying and not just doing, it's teaching Paul wrote to Timothy again, My child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Recently, not long ago, we had a, a workshop, a couple of day workshop on expository preaching, trying to help men in the church teach the word of God, preach the word of God. Every pastoral process that people have gone through in this church is a... They, they need to develop, and they spend numerous hours uh, working through preaching and teaching gifts. We have community group training where we're helping community group leaders be better equipped to teach and facilitate well. But let me say this this morning. The reason why I believe that Ezra was asked to teach and, and to oversee the teaching ministry and was so effective in his Bible teacher, now catch this, is because he wasn't just talking the talk, he was what? Walking the walk. Ezra was walking the walk. In other words, a good teacher must back up what he says with his actions. They must show with their life the things that they're teaching about this book they believe to be true. Right? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about consistency and submission to the scriptures. They're un- we are under the scriptures. We need to do that consistently and in humility. And we see the church flourish. We see energy uh, uh, back in the church as, as people teach the scripture and it flows out from their life. A life of consistency, a deep walk with Christ, coupled with humility to be real. Then when you open the book and teach it and declare it with authority. Because you have been broken by it and you're resting on it at the same time. You're trusting in it, you've been humbled by it and you're resting in it. Character matters when we're teaching scripture. Now teaching with authority is what we're talking about and it has nothing to do with, not always anyway, maybe with passion, maybe with vigorous or loud teaching. Some people think, you know, if you're a polished teacher, you're a polished preacher, you have charm, you have panache, you have captivating appearance and delivery, you really know what you're talking about. That's the scary thing about some of the false teachers you guys like Joseph Prince, when you listen to him, he, he throws out these Greek words and, and matter-of-fact style, but what he's teaching most of the time is not even scriptural, biblical at all. Very dangerous. 
Recently I heard him say with, with strong conviction, this is what Joseph Prince said. He says, you can look it up on YouTube, but actually don't even listen to him. But anyway, he says, there are only two definitions of God in the Bible. Only two. God is love. God is light. Then he repeats himself with emphasis. There's only two definitions. God is love and God is light. That's ridiculous and very wrong. God is defined in the Bible in more ways than two. In fact, we sang the song in Isaiah's vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This threefold repetition to describe God, the praise of God in his holiness is the only time in Scripture it's described of God three times like that. It's a superlative form of, of emphasis in worship in, in the Hebrew language. Their cries tells us that there's nothing that is as significant as the holiness of God. It's the first verse I thought of when he said those things. Real biblical teaching and preaching with authority comes from all kinds of temperaments and personalities, but it must be based on the totality of Scripture and a good understanding of the totality of the Scripture and good interpretation skills. Know your Bible. So when you teach it, you could be honest. When you teach it, you can be the one that wants to live it out more than anyone. When you teach it, you're drawing from a well. When you teach it, you're admitting faults and failures. You're not simply a supporter of Scripture. You're a witness to its truth and it, the way it changes your life as the teacher. Then you can stand up there and speak with authority. You know, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded message he preached while he was in ministry, it says that when he got done with the Sermon on the Mount, listen, this is what it says. It said the crowd heard the teaching of Jesus and they said, man, that is one slick dude. They didn't say that. Man, that guy has a delivery beyond anyone we've ever seen. They didn't say that. They didn't even say, boy, that guy is really smart. He knows his Bible. You know what they said? They were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority. He walked the walk. Next, Ezra the sound scholar, lastly. What I mean when I say Ezra, goes to, uh, Ezra is a sound scholar is that he's a wise man. He's a man who is sounded in his beliefs. He's a man who is stable, who's a man who walks by faith, and he knows how to navigate life by walking by faith, trusting in God, and receiving the things in which he needs from others. He was a wise scholar. He knew when to pray, to seek God's favor, to seek God's face, to seek God's protection, but he knew when to act and, and trust him in the provisions that God has provided. But ultimately, Ezra was a man who knew without a shadow of a doubt that God's favor rested upon him. It wasn't his ancestry. It wasn't even his skills or some lucky break. Chapter 7, verse 6. The king granted him all that he asked and the hand of the Lord was upon him. Chapter 7, verse 9. On the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was upon him. Chapter 7, verse 25. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, you possess the very wisdom of God. And then at the end of chapter 7, after he receives this letter, what does Ezra cry out? Chapter 7, verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his God's steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, Ezra saying, 
For the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now, when you get to chapter 8, what you find here is Ezra, uh, the first part is the genealogy, and then when you find after the genealogy is Ezra has this contingency of people preparing to leave Babylon. Chapter 8, beginning, uh, chapter 8, verse, starting at verse 15. He's getting ready to leave Babylon, and before he leaves, he gathered these people at a river named, uh, the river's name is Hava, uh, H-A-A-V-A, Hava, and he, and he gathers the people there, and he's like, let's do a body count. And he looks around, and he says, you know what? We have lots, lots of, of priests, we have enough priests, but there are no Levites here. Now remember, they need Levites to help and when they get to the temple. So Ezra goes, you know what? I, have, I know what we'll do. I got an idea. Let's, let's send someone to Ido, and he knows where there's some, some, some Levites. Like, he's got the goods. He knows where the stash is. So let's send some men. Let's get some. Before we leave, we got preached. Let's get some Levites. And you pick up in verse 18. It says, because the good hand of God was upon us, they brought us men of discretion. Look what it says. The sons of Malai, the sons of Levi. So we've got some Levites and their kinsmen. So he, he, he's like, look, let's get some people. Notice what happens next in verse 21. While he's at this river, he's getting ready to leave and head out. He's getting ready to go. He realizes we don't have enough Levites. Let's go get some. You go see so-and-so. Get me something. Then bring them back to me. Bring them back to me. He's getting ready to leave. Look at verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast at the river Hava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for our good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You know what's so intriguing about this passage in chapter 8? There are times that Ezra says to the king, Give me. In fact, chapter 7, he has all kinds of gold. And he's walking, he's traveling with millions of dollars. There are times that he accepts the things, he accepts the means, he accepts the things and the help from the king. And now when he needs the king's help the most, he says, I'm not going to help. I'm not going to ask you for any more help. I am just going to fast and pray. So in one sense, he says, the means that God provides you, the kings are good, I'll accept it. And other times, like, I know you can help me, I don't need your help. And if you look down at chapter 8, verse 24, you notice that they're traveling 900 miles. Man, there's a lot of gold. Tons of gold, tons of silver. He has the priest, he says, look, before we leave, we have, you know, millions of dollars worth of gold and silver. Before we go, let's count it. Let, let, let's count it. And you know what, priest? You watch over it on the travel. I don't want anyone to say when we got there, where's the loot? There's some pieces missing. Smart decision. So he has all the priests counted out, weigh everything out before they leave, and then when they get to Jerusalem, they count it out again. Everything's there. Okay, good. The accountability, it's smart. So why would he refuse his journey? I mean, these people are traveling 900 miles. Do you remember the story? Jesus, the good Samaritan, the guy went on his journey, and, and then they beat him up. Well, that happens all the time. You don't have no cell phones. You have no armed escort. You can't call anybody. You're traveling 900 miles through the, through the desert. People would wait in ambush for you. He's traveling with tons of gold and silver. 
pockets loaded. I don't need any help. I don't need any help. Wouldn't it help to just maybe make sure I get there safely, O king? In fact, many scholars point out that Nehemiah, his contemporary, does the same thing, only a few years later. And Artaxerxes gives him stuff. And you know what? Nehemiah says, the good hand of the Lord is upon me. Can you give me a ride there and make sure I get there safe? Ezra says, I don't need your help. Nehemiah says, I'll take your help. Both of them say, the good hand of the Lord is upon me. You know, there are two kinds of people. You know, there, there's, there is those that are practical. And if you're like me, right, you count the cost. You look around, you see what you need, you see what you got, you see where you're going, and you kind of strategize, okay, I'm going. I, I like that. Then there are others who seem to look beyond the, the, what's right before them, and, and they have these special glimpses into faith, right? And they're like, we need to trust God. God will provide. So it depends on your personality. It depends on your disposition. You, you either resonate with one or the other. God does you sometimes means like that, right? So it depends on where you're at. But I think what we can learn from this is there are extremes on both sides. There are those who, who many times uses means and, and the practical to work ways out in our life, but they go too far and they don't realize that God, trusting God is important, that trusting in him what in the unseen is important. And sometimes it's what strengthens our faith to trust him in what you don't see. And then you have others that just want to trust him no matter what and they have no strategic, uh, strategic plan. Right? They're just, they're like, we have no plan, we have no course, we have no idea what we're doing, we're just going to do that. Like, uh, I don't know about that. I mean, God gave us a brain, you should probably use it, right? You don't just put it on. So, I think, you know, step out in faith, think it through. Sometimes it's, it's hard to pinpoint, I realize that. And I don't think we can have an answer directly for that, but look what Ezra says in verse 22. He gives us a clue. When is it Do we walk out in faith? When is it? Do we strategize? Look at verse 22. He refused to go to the king for help because he is ashamed to ask for help. He had already told the king, God is great. God is good. God will provide. God will protect. God's hand is upon me. Now I can't ask you for help now. You see, Ezra chose, Ezra chose to not seek for help for the king while while Nehemiah chose to help. Ezra said, no, I don't need help. Nehemiah said, yes, because in Ezra's situation, listen, Ezra's situation, he believed that if he asked the king for help, it would bring dishonor to God. In other words, Ezra did not feel that he should request assistance from the king because in his discernment, in his judgment, the reputation of God, the honor of God, the glory of God was at stake. God normally expects expects us to use both the means that he provides along with the faith he gives us. But sometimes, when, when we don't trust him, it's a bad witness to people around us. I'm reminded in a study of Corinthians that Paul, Paul told the church at Corinth that the pastors has every right to receive wages, don't muzzle an ox, he says, while he's training the grain. That while they're teaching and preaching, care for them. But, he says, I won't receive any money. And in that context, Paul said, I don't want your financial help because I will look like every other philosopher that rolls into town expecting a handout. So in that context, for Paul to honor the gospel, to honor Christ, to honor his mission, he chose not to receive that which was properly and allowed to be received for the honor and the glory and the mission of the gospel. 
And that's, I think, what you see here. That's what you, that's what you see here. So in order to glorify God, he's like, I, I, I'm not going to accept that. So I think sometimes we, we have to give ourselves a little bit of leeway. That sometimes you and I may see the same thing. We may see the direction. We may see the mission. And you may see it differently than I do. We're not talking about doctrinal importance. We're talking about areas of methods. And we may not see it the same way. One may see it this way. One may do it that way. The example of Ezra does not answer our questions totally. It encourages us, though, I think, to, to check our ways, to see our methods, to, to, to look at our actions, and to honestly ask ourselves, Lord, give me the wisdom. I want you to be glorified. I want your name to be exalted. I want them to see your glory, that they may see what our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. I think when that's in place, we can walk. Let me end with this. Verse 31 to close. Chapter 8, verse 31. Then we departed from the river, Ahava, on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes along the way. He gives glory to God, right? Verse 33, on the fourth day, uh, we came to Jerusalem, and there we remained there three days. And on the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed out, into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Joshua, Noadiah, the son of Buniah. The whole was counted and weighed, and weighed of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exile, what they do? They offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and a sin offering 12 male goats. See that? All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. So they're three days. They're three days. They're resting. I'm sure Ezra's like, man, we got here safely. We did not get mugged along the way. I am so glad. Praise God for his faithfulness, right? Didn't get mugged. And then they're there a few days, and what are they doing? They're going to the temple. We see them weighing stuff again, and then they're offering sacrifices. They're worshiping the Lord. And the number 12 is very significant. He's saying all of Israel. We hear all of Israel's being representative and they've come to, to do what they know they needed to do to worship and to sacrifice burnt offerings. It was a way to atone for sin, but burnt offerings, I said before, was also as a way not only to atone, not only to be accepted by God, but it was a symbol of total, complete consecration. Consecration. The families and these men and women who got back said, we are completely giving ourselves over to the Lord. They've came for the purpose of worship and now they're seen as, as consecrating themselves onto the Lord. Revitalization happens when there's a continual renewal, revitalization, a consecration to the Lord. To the Lord, His will for our lives. Have you ever been in that place when God is speaking to you and there are things you're holding on to and it may be a worship song, it may be a, a worship in preaching and teaching, something in your life and you just surrender. I know we pick it back up again. I know it's a constant thing. I, I know. You surrender completely to Jesus for about 2.2 seconds. And we just keep coming back. But that needs to happen over and over and over again. They give themselves onto the Lord. 
Now, the celebration of sin offering and the celebration of burnt offering was not just a response to God in obedience. It wasn't just for his faithfulness and his provision, his people, for ultimately the sacrificial system of giving to Israel pointed to the one who would come and redeem mankind. Ultimately, would be fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, one last thing. Give me two more minutes. I want to show you something really cool. Jeremiah the prophet had spoken a lot about the exile. Jeremiah the prophet, through, through God, through the Jeremiah, told Israel that they were going to be exiled. They were going to be destroyed. They were going to be conquered. And that after 70 years, they're going to return. So he spoke about their exile and he spoke about their return. Jeremiah had a lot to say. But in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 17, it says this. Okay, you're in exile, but remember, thus says the Lord, David, King David, shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. We saw that already. King David, the lineage, the ancestry, the seed, will be the eternal king, which is Jesus, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, okay? But then he goes on to say in Jeremiah thirty-three eighteen, and... The Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence, God's talking, to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Now, he's not talking about the perpetual sacrifices of lamb. What he's saying is there's going to be, within the lineage of David, a king, an eternal king. But I also promise you, within the ancestry of the priest, there's going to be Christ. So the promise of an eternal priest is offered in Jeremiah to speak to the people of Israel. Just like David will reign, there'll be an eternal high priest. That's why the good hand was upon Ezra. Because God made a promise that through this line, his people will bring about a great redemption. And the story that is being told is not a story of just renewal not a story of just going back it's a story of christ it is the story of god's promise listen what hebrews chapter 7 says says it tells us that although jesus was a descendant of judah and not levi but he is the ultimate priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning his descendancy but by the power of an indescribable indestructible life The scripture says you, Jesus, are a priest forever over the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, O Jesus, are the priest forever. Hebrews says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, the former priests, Hebrews writes, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in that office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because... Because he continues forever. Therefore he is able to save us to the utmost those who draw near to God through Christ. Since he always lives to make an intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Lord Jesus. Holy and innocent and unstained and separate from sinners and exalted in the heavens. He has no need. 
Jesus has no need like the other priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sin and then for the sin of the people since Jesus did this once for all when he offered up himself. Every high priest stands, the Hebrew says, offering repeatedly sacrifices, but it was Jesus who offered himself once as a single sacrifice and sat down, done, on the right hand of the Father. He says, therefore, we have confidence. You have confidence because of Jesus. You have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest forever. He said, by the new and living way open through the curtain that is his flesh, he was crucified on your behalf. The temple curtain was torn in two, the gospel tells us, that he is the great high priest over the house of God. Therefore, come with full assurance, full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is the eternal high priest that Jeremiah was speaking to the exiles about. Ezra is pointing to Jesus. He is a true and better high priest who does not sacrifice daily, but sacrifices himself as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and my sin. And that's what this communion table is all about. As we not only remember, we invite the Holy Spirit to come as we, we take of the bed, we drink of the cup, we remember the sacrifice, we remember our brokenness, we remember our sin, we confess and repent, and then we celebrate the Lord's forgiveness, the eternal high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies through the curtain of his own body that was broken for you and for me. That's what it's all about. That's what Ezra's all about. That's what Ezra's pointing to, the eternal high priest. His name is Jesus. So revitalization, renewal happens when we trust God. He is faithful. He will raise up leaders. Revitalization, renewal happens when we take God at his word. We, we teach it. We, we, we live it. Revitalization renewal happens when we walk by faith, trusting Him, accepting God's provision, yet having faith in the unseen. And lastly, revitalization and renewal happens when Jesus becomes the point. When Jesus becomes the point, when Jesus becomes the hero, when Jesus becomes the focal point of God's people, the gospel for the glory of God and the joy of His people. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around this communion table and we remember we remember the sacrifice of your beloved son we remember how sinful and broken we are we remember how loved and cared for we are we are humbled and we are broken yet we rejoice and we are confident that's what the gospel does for us so father we ask that you would bring to heart, bring to mind the things that get in the way. We know our relationship with you through the blood of Jesus is secure for all eternity, but we know our, our silliness and our rebellion keeps us from the sweet fellowship. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. We want to obey because of your great love for us. So Father, we ask that as the music is played, as we are partaking of the bread and the cup, Lord, you would get glory. We would confess our sins, we would repent of our sins, and we will celebrate your grace and your mercy that you've shown to us in Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are seated at the right hand 
of you, Father. Thank you for sending your Spirit to dwell within us to point to Jesus. Thank you for sending us, your people, into the world. God, may we never lose sight of what's important. May we never lose sight of the mission. May we never lose sight of the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.